KMTT Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. Welcome back. Today is Tuesday, Gimel Iyar. And it's 19 days in the Omer. That's two weeks and five days. Hod Shabitiferet. Today's Shia will be the first Shia in a new series by Harav Moshe Tarragon. A series on the essentials of Avodat Hashem. Rabbi Tarragon is a Ram in Yeshiva Taratzion quite some years now. You've heard him before, once or twice, on Erev Shabbat and Pashat HaShavua. He'll be giving a regular series this summer uh, on Tuesdays. As usual, after the Shir, we will have a short Halacha Yomit. And so, without any more wasting of time, the Shir of Haraf Taragin. This series of Shirim discussing the various parameters and responsibilities of Avodah Hashem, will attempt to highlight the basics of religious experience and of worship. The Shirim will address by highlighting fundamental sources, psukim, central statements of Chazal, will attempt to illustrate the various contours and facets of mitzvahs which form pedestal of our religious experience. The first mitzvah, or the first group of mitzvahs which will be discussed, is the group listed in the in the Mishnah in the first parak of Perkiyavos. Shimon HaTzadik, one of the remnants of the Anshekinesis Hagadola, Shimon HaTzadik articulated that there are three foundations upon which the world is pivoted. Al shlosha devarim haolam omed, al tara, al avoda, v'algamilus chasadim. The first few shiurim will address these three components, which Rabbi, which which Shimon Atzadik viewed as central not just to religious worship, but to the stability of an entire cosmos. The first of these three, of course, is the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. Altara. It's, of course, redundant to list the various statements of Chazal throughout Shas, throughout Medrash, centralizing Torah experience as not only the midpoint of religious experience, but a mitzvah which could be considered equivalent to the entire Torah. Talmud Torah Kineged Kulam. So much emphasis, so many resources are invested in Talmud Torah at so many levels and at so many phases of religious development. Almost all yeshivas today are centered one way or another around the experience of Talmud Torah. And classically, traditional Judaism, classically, has placed such a heavy, heavy investment on Talmud Torah, sometimes to the exclusion of other religious pursuits. Chazidus was an attempt in some ways to re-landscape the invest re-landscape the balance between Torah and other types of religious experiences. It felt that Judaism had become too elitist in placing such a heavy weight upon the cognitive and cerebral aspects of religion and perhaps expressing dismissiveness or belittlement to other areas 
of religious commitment and worship. And Hasidus was in many ways a revolutionary attempt to cause a transformation of values and to decentralize Talmud Torah in order to lend greater depth and greater significance to other areas of Jewish and religious experience. Of course, it was a very, very brave effort, but one which aroused a great controversy and elicited much opposition in many ways, primarily because of this transvaluation, because of this attempt to decentralize Talmud Torah, because since Chazal articulated Talmud Torah connected Kulam, many different approaches can be taken to the way Torah is studied, to the allocation of Torah time in relation to the allocation of other time and other pursuits in religion. But Torah must always remain central. Talmud Torah connected Kulam. And to a degree, the success of Hasidus and its ability to sustain itself over the past 200 years is in part because it moderated its stance and in part because all branches of Hasidus today subscribe to Shimon HaTzadik's position of Talmud Torah Kineged Kulam and Shloshet Devar Malam Omed Al Torah. Why is Talmud Torah so significant? Why is it such a central foundation of serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Why is its mitzvah considered connected Kulam? Why as a community do we place such efforts and invest so massively in Talmud Torah at all levels of education and development? It's an important question, a question which I think we oftentimes ignore, and by ignoring the question, we perhaps prevent ourselves or inhibit ourselves from a deeper understanding of our commitment and our practice of Talmud Torah. But to understand the question, to understand, or of course, the, not the question, but to answer this question, you must first consider the basic premise of religious experience in general, and of course, the struggle which religion poses to man. Religion is perched on the premise that man seeks an encounter with the other, with a higher being who can redeem him and redeem his world, who possesses wisdom beyond his own wisdom, intellect beyond his own intellect, experience beyond his own limited and failed experience. In short, the heart of religion is premised on an encounter, on a rendezvous between man and God. However, this encounter and this rendezvous is haunted by the prospect that God is unlike human experience. He is transcendent. He is invisible. He is unknowable. No human words, no human conventions can describe him or his essence. The very definition of transcendence suggests the unknowability of God. There's a common mistake that the term kadosh refers to God's holiness. Holiness is a poor English translation of the term kadosh. Kadosh means transcendence, distance. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is beyond the human experience, in no way partakes of the human experience. It's not physical. It's not a creature, it's not a being who functions in time or behaves in any way similar to the human experience which is why the third bracha of Shimon Esrei 
which is dedicated to describing HaKadosh Baruch Hu's transcendence. Merely repeats the term Kadosh without attempting to define it or to elaborate it. Ata Kadosh, Veshimcha Kadosh, Ukadoshim Mechol Yom You are Kadosh, you are transcendent, your name is transcendent, it's beyond. And we assert that transcendence on a daily basis. Unlike the other brachas of Shemona Ezrei, which attempt to delineate, to describe the various features of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the final bracha merely states his distance, his indescribability, his indecipherability. Or, as the second section of Kedusha asserts, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzavakos. And we try to capture in repetition what we cannot in illustration or in elaboration. The word Kadosh describes Hashem's distance from the human experience, from the human mind. And this distance and transcendence riddles the religious experience and the aim for encounter with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, riddles it with dilemma and with paradox. How is man limited in his experience, flawed by his own immorality, meant to rendezvous or interact with not just the perfect or morally unblemished God, but with a God whose very being, in essence, lies beyond the grasp and the reach of the human imagination. Of course, almost every religion which has visited this planet has affected a humanization of God's presence, a humanization of his essence, in an attempt to render him more familiar, more accessible, more identifiable. Paganism is a long history of humanization. The initial paganistic cultures, the original paganistic tendencies, were gross humanizations of the divine transcendent spirit. Native Americans worshipped the seasons, the forests, the elements of nature which surrounded their daily experience, which they could touch and feel, immerse themselves in, suffer through. This paganism was known as mythopoeic, it attempted to mythologize the environment and its elements into a larger divine system. Ultimately, of course, paganism becomes slightly more advanced and it invests divine essence not in the palpable waters, the natural winds, the tangible forests, but in molten images icons, abstractions of God's essence, but nonetheless images, images which could be fashioned by man's imagination, which could be cuddled to provide comfort, which could be spoken to, to assist dialogue, and ultimately could even be slapped in a fit of anger to show displeasure with a divine decision. The Romans and the Greeks further abstracted the paganistic process Indeed, divine essence could not be invested in molten images. Indeed, divine beings were more ethereal, more celestial. They resided not in a temple crafted by human hand, but atop Mount Olympus, far from the human community, far from the cities of Athens and Sparta, of Troy. But these divine beings were nonetheless eerily human in their behavior, in their desire, in their character flaws, in their vices, 
reading through Greek and Roman mythology many times is equivalent to reading modern-day tabloids and its headlines. If man was to react or interact with these deities, then they must be humanized so that they become more familiar to the human experience. And by humanizing them, of course, their divine quality was severely tarnished. These divine beings performed all types of crimes, violated all types of ethical and moral norms, because if they were human, or at least human-like, they should be subject to the same limitations and the same flaws which govern human experience. Of course, Greek and Roman paganism ceded to the advent of Christianity and the preponderance of monotheistic traditions throughout our world, throughout our globe. Even though paganism was defeated, Christianity did not liberate itself entirely from the paganist tendency to humanize the divine image, to render it more accessible, more identifiable. Christianity was premised on a very, very sophisticated distinction between God himself, who was transcendent and unknowable, and as it were his child, lived a human life, suffered human experiences, could be painted, could be drawn, could be sculpted, could be spoken to in human form. And even though Christianity heralds the emergence of a primarily monotheistic world community, it does not entirely escape the great curse of paganism. For once, God's image is even partially humanized. Whether it's the gross humanization of the ancient pagans or the sophisticated humanization of Christianity, once God is even partially humanized, he loses his transcendence, his mystique, his mystery. He loses his omnipotence. He loses his exclusivity because to be human or even human-like is to be one amongst many, is not to be completely powerful and omnipotent, but perhaps to reign in one kingdom of heaven while ceding sovereignty in a different kingdom to another being, as it were, who possesses a will of its own. And throughout the ages, Judaism has steadfastly avoided any and every attempt to even partially humanize or paganize the divine image. God remains beyond human comprehension, beyond human experience, unknowable, shrouded in mystery, invisible, and inscrutable. Less machshava detvisa beklal, as the Zohar says. There is no intellect, there is no human mind which can possibly, possibly penetrate the divine being. Any word which the human mind can think of is completely inapplicable when applied to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. For all of our worlds are hewn from the quarry of human experience and that world and that experience in no way, shape or form relates to HaKadosh Baruch Hu.
the only word which the human being can conjure, which applies to Kodesh Baruch Hu, is the word not. He is not anything that we are accustomed to. He in no way reflects any aspect of our experience, of our lives. Utterly transcendent. Unknowable. This has been our badge of honor throughout our long march through history. However, the problem remains. If God cannot be humanized, if he is absolutely no human referent, then how is man to interact with him? How is man to love him, to fear him, to cling to him, to walk in his way, to craft a lifelong relationship out of love and a fear? In short, how is the religious process meant to sustain itself if the religious process is perched upon an encounter between limited and flawed human beings and an unknowable and perfect God? In short, the great challenge of religion remains an even greater challenge, an even greater paradox for a Jew who steadfastly refuses any paganistic tendencies. Of course, there are myriad answers to this question. There are multiple access routes, multiple manners in which we relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We fashion our moral essence in His likeness. We pray to Him. We participate in the history of His people. We obey His commands. But more than any other opportunity, the Torah, the totality of Torah, is that Kaddish Baruch Hu has revealed will to humankind. The halachic sections of Torah contain his will as it pertains to every aspect of human affairs and industry and experience. God's will as it, as it pertains to agriculture can be glimpsed through a careful and rigorous study of the laws of Zerayim. Just as his will when it relates to marriage can be glimpsed can be appreciated by studying the laws of Kiddushin and of Gerushin, how a marriage is constructed, how it's dismantled, the laws of Yibum, the elasticity of marriage, the responsibility of a family to bolster a family which has been imperiled by the loss of its father, the laws of sacrifice and ritual can be appreciated through the prism of Dine Kochim. The financial system that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wills can be crystallized by studying the details of Baba Kama, Baba Metzia, Baba Basra. Some areas are not easily packaged into a particular location in Chas. For example, to appreciate HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will as it pertains to architecture, one must study Masechah Shabbos to define walls and areas, Masechah Kilayim to appreciate divisions between wheat and grapes, the laws of Sukkah to get a better sense of how we build even temporary huts, the laws of Erevin, virtual domains and virtual spaces. Architecture is not neatly packaged into one area of Halacha, but spans multiple fronts, multiple horizons. A person who studies Torah attempts to analyze and dissect the respective areas and link them together through logic and through intuition. 
The halachic portion of Torah contains HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will as it pertains to human experience, to human affairs. And the non-halachic portions of Torah, what is referred to as Agada, contains HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will as it pertains to the inner world of the human being. His thoughts, his emotions, his character traits, his passions, his personality. Of course, it's much less scientific, much less concrete. Each and every Jew has a responsibility to eat matzah on the 15th of Nisan, regardless of age, gender, location. Character traits are much more dependent upon context, upon the framework. But the general guidelines for building character and personality, the general parameters are contained in the section known as Haggadah. By studying Torah, we acquire Hashem's will. We get to know Him more deeply, we appreciate Him more clearly than any other study can yield in any other discipline. The field of philosophy, though potentially an enriching additive to the religious mind, is inferior to Torah study in granting a glimpse and an understanding of God. For philosophy is an attempt to understand God in human terms, while Torah is an attempt to read his own revealed word in his own terms, in divine terms. Philosophy can certainly enrich, can potentially enhance religious consciousness, but it is secondary to the study of Torah and gaining an appreciation of Hashem's essence and by gaining this essence and catalyzing the entirety of the religious process. For if we don't know Hashem, we have no sense of who He is and what His essence is, the entire religious experience is less rich and less deep. Who are we bowing to? Who are we praying to? Who are we worshiping? Whose will are we obeying? Whose history and whose people are we serving? Whose morality are we imitating? Who are we loving and who are we fearing? Torah is the springboard for the entire religious system. Chazal articulated this reality in two very important locations. The first instance in which Chazal articulated the role of Torah in granting a crystal image of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's essence, the first moment in which Chazal articulated this is a section of the Sifri on Parshas Veschanan. The second parsha of Kriya Shema, actually the first parsha of Kriya Shema, describes the mitzvah of pledging allegiance to Akarish Baruch Hu's unity, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Alakeinu, Hashem Echad, of transforming that faith from a theoretical creed into a passionate love, V'yavtas Hashem Alokecha, V'chol Levavcha, V'chol Nafshecha, V'chol Miyodecha. And finally, not just affirming belief in God's unity or translating it into love and passion, but of studying Torah. One could question the sequencing of these three religious goals of affirming faith in God and loving God and then learning Torah. Why is Torah, the mitzvah to study Torah, which seems to be a ritual, placed in such theological company? So the, the Sifri articulates as follows. The Torah demands that we love God with all of our heart. 
How can I love him? With, of course, the unspoken question within the Sifri, how can I love him if I don't know him? The continuation of that first parsha, studying Torah, Studying Torah, Shemitoch Kach Vesifri writes, Ata Makir Es HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You will discover Hashem. You will, as it were, know. As close as you can, in human terms, you will know His essence. For Torah is the closest approximation in human terms of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's essence. I mentioned earlier the famous phrase of the Zohar, Les Machshava Detvisa Beiklal, There is no intellect that can grasp His essence. There's another very, very popular phrase in the Zohar. HaKadosh Baruch Hu Sachadhu. Hashem and His Torah are one. Are they truly one? Of course not. Torah is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's creature. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created it. It's a revelation of His will. But from our standpoint, it's the closest we can come to His essence, to understanding Him. For understanding Him lies beyond the human imagination. But understanding His Torah, as infinite as it is, as boundless and as sweeping, Torah is something which can be grasped by the human mind and the human heart. As the Sifri reminds us, Shemitoch kach, through the study of Torah, through the experience of Eshinantam Levanecha, Atamakiras HaKadosh The Rambam adopted the Sifri and articulated it in more compelling fashion. When the Rambam describes the first section of Kriya Shema, in Hilchos Kriya Shema, Perak Aleph Alachabes, he writes as follows. We first recite this parsha, and only subsequently the next two sections of Kriya Shema, Vahayam Shemoah, and ultimately the parsha of Tzitzis. The Rambam writes, because this parsha has three elements that are salient to Avodah Hashem. Mipnei Sheyeshba, the Rambam writes in Hilchus Kriya Shema. Mipnei Sheyeshba, this parsha contains Yichud Hashem, affirming God's unity. Ahavas Hashem, v'avaso, Translating that love, converting that love, converting that belief into passionate love. Vitalmudo and studying his Torah. And the Rambam writes about Talmud Torah, Shehu Haikar Hagadol Shehakol Taluibo, the central pillar upon which the totality of religion is dependent. The Rambam only employs this phrase one other time throughout Mishnah Torah. Ha'ikar ha'gadol she'akal talibo. He employs it with regard to the denial or the rejection of dualism, of dual gods, of paganism. By studying Torah, we ultimately animate the entirety of the religious experience. By knowing God through His Torah, we can affirm His unity. We can create a relationship of love and of fear. And this is precisely the reason that Talmud Torah is inserted into the first section of Kriya Shema. The first section of Kriya Shema deals primarily with theology, faith, love. Presumably, the mitzvah of Talmud Torah belongs in the second parsha of Kriya Shema, which describes ritual and mitzvah performance. But the Torah itself inserted the mitzvah of Talmud Torah into the first section to remind us that without the study of Torah, 
the entire theological system collapses. The Rambam inserted the laws of Talmud Torah into the first of his 14 sections of Mishnah Torah. For he too recognized that Talmud Torah was not just a mitzvah, a ritual. Talmud Torah does not belong in Hilchos Ahava, which describes various other important but local mitzvahs, tzitzes and tefillin and brachos and tefillah. The laws of Talmud Torah belong in Hilchos Mada, which describes the entire system of Jewish faith. For without Talmud Torah, Jewish faith is hollow. Ha'ikara gadol shakal taluibo. The second occasion in which Chazal articulated the reason for Torah's centrality, the function of Torah in facilitating human comprehension of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's essence, is in Avaz Drev Nasan, or the comments in Avaz Drev Nasan to this Mishnah in Avaz, the first parak with which we began. Avaz Drev Nasan is, should be taken as a companion work to Perki Avaz. It was compiled by a different Tana. Some say Rav Nasan, others say other Tanaim. But if Pirkei Avos tends to be terse and pithy, Avos Rav Nasan tends to be rolling and expansive. And sometimes the phrases of Pirkei Avos become aphorisms and they roll off of our tongues with great ease, sometimes preventing us from deeper understandings. Whereas the more elaborative, meandering discussions in Avos Rav Nasan sometimes provide insights to the statements in Pirkei Avos, which are highly illustrative. So whereas Pirkei Avos merely describes in very concise form, Shimon HaTzadik, Ohiya Omer, Al Shlosha Devarim Halam Omeid, Al Torah, V'Al Havodah, V'Al Gemilas Chasadim, Avos Rav Nasan amplifies. Al HaTorah Ketzad. And it quotes a Pasuk in Hosea. The Pasuk in Hosea writes, Ki chesed chafatzti velo zevech, v'da'as elokim mi'olos. Hashem announces through his Navi that I prefer ethics to sacrifice. Don't believe that you can mask unethical behavior through a pageant of sacrifices. Ki chesed chafatzti velo zevech, I desire your charity and not your sacrifices. V'da'as elokim mi'olos. And knowledge of God is preferable to another Ola. In general, this Pasuk in Hosea is directed at those who offered sacrifice but acted hypocritically, either in unethical behavior or in lack of knowledge or pursuit of the knowledge of Hashem. Chesed chafatzi zevach. Your korbanos are meaningless if they're not accompanied by ethical behavior. Vidas elokim olos, and your olos are irrelevant if they're not braced by the pursuit of Hashem. Explaining this pasuk in Hosea, the Mishnah in Avos Drebi Nasan Perak Dalid writes as follows: The study of Torah is more precious to Hakadosh Baruch Hu than even. The most precious carbon, a carbon ola, which is completely, completely sacrificed on the mizbech. Lefi sheim adam lo a person who studies Torah, yodea daito shel makom. He understands, he grasps, he comprehends the will, the essence of a kodesh baruch hu. Shenemar az tavin yiras Hashem epasak in mishlei v'das elokim timza. 
This is the second occasion on which Chazal articulates the capacity of Torah study to yield the closest approximation of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's essence in human terms, his will, his revealed will. And this is precisely why Torah study has been so traditionally centralized. Because without the Ikar HaGadol, without the central pillar, the entire experience is less rich, is less passionate, is less successful. Because we cannot possibly, on human terms, know the God who we worship. Chazal themselves discern this message in a very interesting nickname for Torah, which appears twice in Chamesh Yochum On two occasions, Chazal saw the phrase, Shem Hashem, as a veiled reference to Torah study. The Pasuk in Hazinu writes, Ki Shem Hashem Ekra, which in a literal level means when I announce the name of Hashem, we should praise and glorify it, which mandates bowing down upon hearing the mention, the recitation of Hashem's name in Beis HaMikdash, the Shem HaMafarash, the Tetragamon. However, Chazal saw this as a reference not just to mentioning HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name, but to Tarastari. The Gemara in Brachos on Daf Chafalef derives the Bracha recited prior to learning Torah, Birchas HaTara, Lasok B'Devrei Sarah, Shebachar Banu Mikol Amim, derives this bracha from this Pasuk. Hishem Hashem Ekra, when I announce the name of Hashem, namely when I study Torah, Havrugodel Elokeinu, give praise and thanks by reciting a bracha. A second instance in which the phrase Shem Hashem is taken as a hidden reference to Talmud Torah, is based on the Pasuk in Yisrael. After the fanfare, after the epiphany and revelation of Harsinai, Rishbaruch instructs Moshe to try to incorporate revelation and encounter with God on a daily basis by building a Mizbech, by constructing a Mishkan. Mizbech Adamat HaSeli, Perech HaFalef, you should erect a Mizbech, upon which you will sacrifice, Esel Asecha, V'yashlamecha, Estzoncha, V'yashbikarecha, when my name is mentioned, I will come and bless you. Again, at a literal level, referring to the mere mention of a Kodesh Baruch Hu's name. In this case, the Gemara in Sota sees this as a reference to Birchas Kohanim, which is centered around a Kodesh Baruch Hu's name, that Hashem delivers the bracha through the Kohanim as his agents. However, here too, Chazal interpreted the phrase Shem Hashem, as a reference to Talmud Torah, Mishnah Perkiyavos, Paragimel Mishnah Vav, describes various modes of Torah study, studying with ten, studying with five, studying with three. Finally, the Gemara says, how do I know that even a person who studies alone, by him or herself, how do I know that a Kodesh Baruch Hu's presence is felt, and a Kodesh Baruch Hu's bracha is enjoyed? Minayin afilu echad, how do I know that even one person who studies? Shenemar, bechal hamako masher azikir eshemi, when you mention my name, in this case, when you study my Torah, I will come and offer you grace and blessing and bounty. Chazal discerned within this phrase, Shem Hashem, a nickname, a symbol for Torah. 
A name, of course, is not the essence of a person. A name is the way that we access that person. Instead of when I want to call someone, call him across a room, I don't refer to him by the clothing he wears, by the state of his hair, by the glasses, by his activity over the past 10 or 15 minutes. I refer to him by name. It's a code. It's a symbol. It's a human convention that we all um, unanimously adopt to facilitate communication and reference. I were to change my name, I wouldn't be a different person. It may take some adjustment psychologically, but I would not change essentially. But it's our reference point. Torah is referred to as Hashem's name. Is it his essence? Of course not. His essence is unknowable. His essence is transcendent. His essence is beyond any human capacity. But it's the way that we refer to him. It's the way that we access him. It's the way that we study him. It's the way that we interact with him. And by, wit, by discerning within the phrase Shem Hashem, a reference to Talmud Torah, ultimately Chazal were reaffirming Torah as the closest approximation of Hashem's essence in human terms, as the pillar of religious experience, as our solution to the great challenge of religion, how does mortal man interact with divine and transcendent God, and ultimately as the pillar stone of Avodah Hashem. And for today's Halachayomit, we're back to Shmonesve. We're at the very beginning of Shmonesve. Shmonesve begins with a line taken from Sefer Tehirim, outside of the Bacha, before everything in Shmonesve is Berachot. That's why it's called Shmonesve. It's 18, or actually 19 Berachot. But beforehand, you say, Hashem Sefatai Tiftach Ufiyagitilatacha, as the Gemara in Berachot says. You begin with that. And you end with you the Ratzonim Rafi, Hashem As we mentioned when we talked about Smichut Gulad Tfila, the Gemara asks why this Pasuk should not be an interruption between Geula, Ga Yisrael, and Shmonesai, which begins Baruch. And the Gemara answers that you, that Hashem Sfatai Tiftach is Tfila Arichta. It's becomes part of Davening. It's a long Tfila. And therefore Ga Yisrael is immediately contiguous to Tfila, meaning Hashem Sfatai Tiftach. Because Hashem's Fatai Tiftach is part of Tefillah. There is a, 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 a dispute, a, a, a general discussion as to how strongly we understand this statement that Hashem's Fatai Tiftach is actually part of Shemon For instance, what would be if someone forgot to say Hashem's Fatai Tiftach? He began Shemon by saying Baruch. If you leave out part of Shemon you have to say it again. Every part of Shemon is necessary. Is Hashem's Fatai Tiftach that much a part of Shmonesrei that one should go back to the beginning of Shmonesrei and begin again? The Mishnabur Paskins that it's not necessary, meaning it's it's like a long Shmonesrei, but it's not actually part of Shmonesrei. It's enough of Shmonesrei that it shouldn't be an interruption between Geula and Tefillah. But it's not actually part of Shmonesrei. The Moshe Feinstein in the Tshuva in the fifth Chedek of the Igot Moshe disagrees and claims that, no, Hashem's Fatai Tiftach is part of Shemun If you left it out, you're not Yotzei, you're not Yotzei Shemun One of uh, Rav Moshe's proofs is from a, a statement of Rav Sadjigon, going back a very, very long way, one of the fathers of the Sidur. Sidur of Sadjigon was, Sidur of Sadjigon together with Sidur of Amramgon are the two bases for all Nuschot HaTfilah. And Rav Sadjigon says that if somebody... And made a mistake in Shmon some other mistake he, he left out a different bracha or forgot Yalvi Yavam and he's going back to the beginning of Shmon because he has to repeat Shmon he says Hashem Sfatai Tiftach again 
from which Ramosha derives that it's because you weren't Yotze the first time. You're starting a new Shmonesri. Shmonesri has to begin from the beginning. But if it's merely an introduction to Shmonesri, then the first one you said shouldn't be invalidated by the fact that you said some wrong things in the meantime. It's still an introduction to what the Shmonesri that comes. One could disagree. The argument is debatable. But nonetheless, Rabbi Moshe's point is that Hashem's Fatah is actually part of Shmonesri. Uh, there's a machloket, a much older machloket, as to whether the chazan, when he repeats Shmonesrei, should say Hashem Sfatai Tiftach. The minig really isn't. I mean, I think most chazanim begin Baruch without saying Hashem Sfatai again. The Shulchan Aruch you should say it. That doesn't prove that it's an integral part of Shmonesrei. If it is an integral part of Shmonesrei, then of course you have to repeat it again. I know that Salavechik was very insistent on it. The Gemara says it's Tfila Arichta. That's the way Tfila begins. When the Chazan says Shmonesrei a second time, it's a second Shmonesrei. It should begin with Hashem's Fatai Tiftach, that's Salam Achab Paskins. Uh, although the truth is, most people don't do it, and, and some people think, well, you should, Chatchila, but again, it's not, uh, it isn't, it isn't Ma'akev. Uh, it's Mekubal, it's accepted among the Paskim, that after Hashem's Fatai Tiftach, you cannot say another Pasuk. In other words, in Shacharit and Ma'ariv, where we have to be somech gula tefillah, you're not allowed to interrupt gula and tefillah. So you can say Hashem Sfatai Tiftach, you can't say another pasuk. So you're not allowed to say Kishem Hashem Ekra, because that pasuk will interrupt between gula and tefillah. But in Mincha, or Musaf, where there is no smichut gula tefillah, so the minhag of Ashkenaz is to add another pasuk. Kishem Hashem Ekra, we show him had a different pasuk. And uh, you can say anything you want, because there's no gula to interrupt. But that's before Hashem Svatay Tiftach. What about after Hashem Svatay Tiftach? So here the argument goes, it's Tfila Arichta. So you've started davening. You can't put in an extraneous pasuk between the beginning of Tfila Arichta and the middle of Tfila Arichta. And that's surely true according to those like Amosh who say that it's 100% part of Tfila. The truth is even those who say that it's not 100% part of Tfila, it's only introduction to Tfila, but nonetheless it's an introduction. You shouldn't have something else and therefore it's generally accepted that one may not say another pasuk. Let's so you got mixed up and you said at Mincha time, Hashem Sotay Tiftach, then you realize you forgot to say Kishem Hashem Ekra, and you want to say it. Well, don't say it. There's no need to say it. And to say it now, after Hashem Sotay Tiftach, would be an interruption in either in the middle of Shemun or between two very adjacent parts of, of Shemun Esrei in, in, in the larger sense. The Machloket of Sajigon and Nevitfa, um, Sajigon says that even if you're in the middle of Shemun Esrei, you realize you made a mistake, and you have to go back to the beginning, the beginning means Hashem Sotay Tiftach, not Baruch. Vitva says no. If you're in the middle and you're going back, so you can go back to Baruch. If you finish Moreshwa and you're saying it again, then he agrees you have to say Hashem Svatai Tiftach. There are other, uh, other distinctions as to whether or not Hashem Svatai Tiftach is actually part of Moreshwa or merely a very close introductory line to, uh, to Moreshwa. In any event, the idea apparently is the Chazal felt that one cannot begin to daven without praying that one be able to daven. Tefillah is prayer, but you have to pray that you can pray. It's not that easy to pray. And therefore we ask God's help that we should be able to pray to Him. And therefore before you begin the actual Shemunah Baruch, you say, Hashem Svatai Tiftach, Ufi Yagid Tehilatecha. That's all for today. Tomorrow is Yom HaTzma'ut and there will be no podcast. We will be back on Thursday with the Shiur for Pakshat HaShavua. And until then, this is Ezra Bek, wishing you
כל טוב, יום טוב, and for Yom Atzmut, a Chag Sameach. You've been listening to KMTT, Ki Mitzion Tetzei Tova, the Tova podcast. Tova every day, Kva Itim LaTova, regular Tova, every day learning Tova. Kol Tov, Migush Etzion, and we will be hearing, you will be hearing from us, Emir Zashem, within a very short time.